This is an ABC podcast. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners, please be advised that this conversation contains content that might be upsetting. Please use discretion when listening. I remember as a kid the kind of stories that really frightened me. Not stories about monsters or ghosts or anything like that. They were the stories about abandoned children, small kids with no parents, where no one's looking out for them, and they have to find their way through a cold, hard world on their own. By the time Keenan Mundine was seven, both his parents were gone. Keenan had no money, no one was looking out for him. So he began to steal food, and he stole TVs and computers. Older boys, an adult man, told him how to do this and schooled him in how to be a criminal. He was in and out of juvenile detention and then prison. Today, Keenan Mundine's life is both a million miles away from where he started and right up close to it at the same time. Keenan has a close family life with the woman who helped get him to where he is today and their two lovely boys. He and his wife Carly have set up Deadly Connections a not-for-profit organisation to help at-risk kids like Keenan once was. In 2018, Keenan spoke at the United Nations in Geneva as part of a campaign to raise the age of criminal responsibility in Australia from 10 to 14. And he sees this as a critical part of a system that incarcerates children, particularly Indigenous children, and keeps them from finding a way out of the cycle of crime, poverty deprivation. And just a heads up, given the nature of the subject matter, there's going to be talk in this conversation about drug use and other sensitive matters, and there's likely to be some strong language as well. Hi, Keenan. Hi, Richard. You are born and raised on, on Gadigal land, but tell me about your family's country, Keenan. Yeah, so my, my mother is a descendant from the Biripai Nation, which is sort of uh, mid-north coast in New South Wales, uh, Foster, Tari. Uh, then my father is from Queensland. He's from Sherberg in Queensland, which is Waka Waka. So um, it's a fun time in my house when um, State of Origin comes around. <laughs> which side are you on? I am going to have to ask that question. Let's, let's just jump straight into controversy already, okay? Just jump in. <laughs> They're not going to like this, but I follow Queensland. <laughs> of course you do. <laughs> have you only recently found out about your your, your family's country and their stories? Um, I knew a little bit as as a kid, but... You know, a lot of the stuff that was happening um, in my childhood and the people that I had access to wasn't really uh, reinforcing, you know, my bloodlines and where they come from. So that was a journey that I discovered uh, later on in my adulthood and trying to, you know, uh, rebuild my identity and find myself and and be at peace with myself. So, so you're one of three boys in your family. Where, where are you in the lineup? I'm the baby. Were you raised mainly in Redfern as a kid, as a little kid? No. So so my mum and my dad moved around quite a bit. But in Redfern, I lived on both streets, Ebley Street, Lewis Street. I think we spent some time up in Townsville or Brisbane. I was a baby, so my oldest sibling remembers um, being moved around a lot. What does the block look like through your eyes as a kid from your childhood memories? What, what kind of pictures do you have and memories of that time as a little kid? Yeah, it was um, not an environment that a child should be raised in and, and, and exposed to such uh, conditions as, as a young person to man, make it a normal part of your life and your reality. So the only way I can explain it is um, as a child, the only visual component that I connected to around a similar environment to mine was in America and their highly densely populated um, ghettos that were run down and drug dealers on every corner and dilapidated houses and cockroaches and mice and all of those things that come with a poor community and, and, and living, man, below the standards, like substandard conditions. So. And were you seeing that like in hip-hop videos? Yeah, the so the only sort of place that, that I could um, c connect with in terms of trying to identify a similar environment to mine was... um on Rage in the morning or, or, or watching video hits and watching hip-hop film clips. And I was like, hold on, like, wow, that looks like my house. and That looks like my street. That looks like my community. Because nowhere outside of the block um, would I venture as a young child. 
this is looks like my neighborhood and like my home um yeah it was a very unique place in terms of what we were exposed to and what we um sort of lived through but also it was a privilege to be you know in amongst my mob my family my community and to be in an environment such as that but as a child that was one of the safest places that i could and, and one of the safest environments that I ever felt for a long, long time. The block was the safest place for you? Yeah. There was there were a lot of um, interconnected families, uh, a lot of in-laws. So so there were people looking out for you despite all that? Yeah. So children really, really were, not really, but you didn't really have to monitor your child because you knew the community had the best interest for your child. So we were left to our own devices to play in the park, to run around the streets and be guided by the elders of that community and, and people who looked out for us that would relay messages back to our carers um you know they're up there fighting in the park <laughs> they're down there doing things that they shouldn't be doing but i've never seen a community like it until i go back to like my country and and and, and missions and stuff like that here in australia seeing a group of 20 or 30 kids playing from nine o'clock in the morning to nine o'clock at night you rarely see it these days did you have to watch nonetheless some of those kids being removed by community services and i just wonder if you did how terrifying that was for you like i said man it's not until now that I can understand and have the power to reflect that those situations and the things that happen within those communities are not normal. But when I lived in them and everyone around me was doing it, you know, taking drugs and, and crime and police, and it was really normal to me and that was my reality. And to answer your question is, yeah, I seen a lot of children being forcibly removed out of their homes and snatched out of their mother's arms and families crying and all of those things that stay with you now um particularly me as an adult and and me um you know trying to be at peace with myself with my experience and i can't uh self-medicate with substances to be able to block these memories out no matter how uncomfortable they make me feel there was a fair bit of heroin around in those days. Were you sort of wondering what was going on with the adults? Why don't they wake up? Why are they always on the nod? Why are they, um, what's what's the matter with them? Was that a thought that occurred to you? I wonder. Once again, man, it was no, It was like normal, you know. It was normal and um, I knew the terminology before I knew the definition of what a junkie was. People that were exhibiting those behaviours, they were just labelled as a junkie. But I didn't really understand what a junkie was. And then, you know, as I started um, experimenting with my drugs and alcohol myself, I, I found out what the literal terminolo terminology for a junkie was, which is very, very um, demonising and stigmatising in terms of somebody that's had a lot of trauma and that uses drugs to self-medicate. And I think it's a lack of education on part of my community that just to blame them as a junkie. You mentioned you were watching a lot of hip-hop videos at the time. I seem to recall sometimes when hip-hop stars uh, would, would come to Australia, rap stars would come to Australia, they'd go out to the block. Do you remember that? Did they ever come and visit you in the block? Yeah, a lot of them did. Really? A lot of them did. Um, most recently on my social media feed, um, somebody put up an archive video of uh, the Fugees that came to the settlement, which was about four streets away from the block. The Fugees came out? Wow. Yeah, and they'd done a... Uh, private little performance down there. Um, Lauren Hill got in amongst it. Wycliffe, holding kids, you know, talking to them. Who else, man? Coolio, Snoop Dogg. Snoop Dogg came to Redford. Yeah. yeah. Public Enemy, Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson came to Redford. Yeah. The most standout one for me, <laughs> which is uh, mostly probably my generation and, and in your generation will know who he is, but um, we had a private sort of performance from Humphrey Bear. <laughs> <laughs> I did not see that coming. <laughs> so, yeah, at the top of the block, I think it was like... I thought you were going to say Prince or something like that. <laughs> like 94, they put a big stage at the top of the block and, yeah, Humphrey come down and rocked the block for us. How does, how does Humphrey rock the block when Humphrey doesn't talk? How does that happen? There's a lot of gesticulation, wasn't yeah. there? Right? <laughs> yeah, he was just doing his dance moves and, and, and mingling with the children. And we all sung his introduction song, Look Over There, It's Humphrey Bear. <laughs> How about sporting heroes? Did they come out to the block too in those yeah, days? Yeah, a lot, man, a lot. Before my time, Muhammad Ali came down. Uh, in my time, George Foreman came down. What about Evander Holyfield? Did he yeah, come out? Yeah, he came down too. 
they were on the other side of the world and there is this little place that looks like their environment and their home and where they came from. So they connected automatically with, you know, the struggle as, you know, black people, but also the struggle with, um, how do I say it, um, being collectively housed in one location. So then you moved out of the block after your parents died. You were how old when your parents died? So, man, I don't know the chronological time, but I know my mum passed away first. I think I was about six. Um, and then not too long after my mum passed away, uh, my father was found across the road from my primary school in a car park hanging. When did you go from there? I went from Redfern out to a little suburb in the eastern suburbs called Chifley. That's La Perouse around there, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, it's right across the road from like Malabar, Little Bay, La Perouse. But where I lived was like a highly densely populated um, community housing estate and there was eight of us in a three-bedroom unit. And who was there to look after you? Family, great auntie and her partner and her one, two, three, four children and a dog. Were you welcome? In a crowded house like that? As welcome as they could make me. How did you go to primary school once you started? Oh, man. That was um, one of the worst experiences of, of my childhood going through primary school. From my experience and, 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 and what I remember was they didn't really care about anything that I just experienced um, and trying to uh, go through, they just basically wanted me at the gate at nine o'clock, switch on, focus, sit in the classroom like every, every other child, do my homework and clock off at three o'clock without any sort of knowledge of what I've been exposed to, the violence that I've already seen, the, the you know, losing both my parents in, in such a short place, being taken from my community and my two older siblings, you know, the last thing that was sort of on my mind was to sit down at school behind a desk and try to read and write when I was still trying to figure everything out of what I just experienced in my short young years and I fell behind at school. Um, I wasn't sleeping well because I didn't, you know, get any sort of grief counselling, psychological counselling, psychiatrist, none of that. I was just left to figure it all out. So there, there would be nights where I wouldn't sleep all night. Um, I couldn't eat because I wasn't processing anything that I was, you know, experiencing. Then I'd go to school and I would not do my, I wouldn't do my homework. I'd fall asleep in the class and I've got um, labelled a problem child that I don't, respect authority and you know all of these labels that that really um put me in boxes rather than supporting me and helping me so for me um primary school and high school was not uh, a fun time for me or a safe space for me to be able to go as a young person and and sort my head out you know is this going to be my home forever this doesn't feel like my home i don't feel safe here where is my home? No, no one uh, providing the support and the connections to my older siblings at that time. The only time I would hear anything about my brothers were if they weren't behaving or they were breaking the law, which led me to find out that my sibling was back at the block at this time. And I asked, can I go see my brother? And they said, we don't think that's best for you. And I was like, well whether you think it's best or not. Like, I need to see my brother. I'm in this house watching you every day unfold as a family, but nobody's worried about my family. So I, at 14, man, I think it was just after I finished year eight, walked out of that house and jumped on the 393, straight down Anzac, Anzac Parade and got off at Central and I walked to the block. This was just after the Olympics and I found my middle brother at that time who was already already experimenting with drugs and alcohol. He was already um, involved with the criminal justice system and he was already showing um, multiple signs of his complex trauma and how it's manifesting. So what I dreamed in my head of what would happen when I found my brother, as opposed to the reality, was a bit confronting and shocking. And within about half an hour, he upped and left and left me to defend for myself.
within three months of him leaving me on the block at that time to look after myself and nobody really showing any sort of, um, what can I say, unconditional love or any sort of responsibility towards me at that time as a 14-year-old kid uh, was evident that nobody, you know, tried to track me down or find me or make sure that I my needs are met or that I'm healing and, and, and healthy. I was left to my own devices and within three months I was committing crime, experimenting with drugs and alcohol and already in the juvenile justice system. You were schooled in, in how to be a criminal and on the block? No, not as a young kid. That was far from um, my hopes and dreams as a child. As a normal little kid growing up in poverty, I just wanted my mum, my dad, my family to have our own home. And But you, but you still have to eat. As a 14-year-old living on the block, you've got to get food from somewhere and you've got to find yeah. find wherewithal. So were you taught, like, this is how you steal and this That's, is how you do it? That was my sort of introduction into um, taking care of myself and it was, you know, just from going to Woolworths, stealing food for yourself and stealing some clothes for yourself to th- me then seeing, you know, the sort of extra stuff that they do um, on the street and that was experimenting with drugs and alcohol. I didn't really do much experimenting before I left, but within... Like that three months, I was smoking cigarettes. I was consuming a bit of alcohol, but I was smoking a hell of a lot of a, a lot of weed at that time, like a lot, about seven grams a day to myself as a 14-year-old kid. So that extra motivation to, to get alternative forms of finances because, you know, food only goes so far and you can't buy substances with them, so you needed more money to, to fund further things. What was the first big thing you stole? I don't know, man. It depends on what you place on value. So for me, um, <laughs> sorry, I'm not laughing, but these are like things that you rarely get to sit back and think about and have a platform to talk about. So when I started on the streets in the game, this was like 2001. So what was hot back then was the Nokia 8210, the Pentium 2s, and they were the main sort of digital devices and we could get anywhere from like $500 to $1,000 for them at that time. So once you stole a Pentium 2, did you get kind of kudos for having stolen something as valuable as that? That was like a, I don't even know how to say it. It was like a modern criminal initiation ceremony. It was like a validation that I can um, do these things now and, and not be a liability to the team and talk about what we've done. Then comes the, not the pressure, but the opportunity now to get involved more. Whereas before, no, you can't come with me. You can't come with me. Oh, yeah, you're in amongst it now and you know how to do these things without bringing us undone. Okay, you can come with me. So it went from breaking into cars, doing um, pickpockets at Central in peak hour, to then stealing cars and doing ram raids. So I don't know if... Many of your listeners are familiar with what a ram raid is. That's when you use a vehicle to ram an enterprise to gain access to it and loot it. But you smash it into a shop, in other words. Yeah, use somebody's car and smash it into a shop and take whatever we can out there and load it in their car and take off. Uh, And then we've got to go find somebody to buy all of those goods. Did you like the excitement of that or was it just terrifying the whole time doing that? There was not really any excitement in, in it, man. There was none for me was like, if I don't do this, I'm going to starve and die. For, for me, um, it wasn't where I'd just uh, commit one crime a day, like me waking up out of bed to brush my teeth. I'd probably have to commit a crime because I'd have to steal a toothbrush and steal a toothpaste. And So just my normal average day, I probably committed like 100 different offences, jumping trains and buses and pick up a scooter off the side of the road or pick up a bicycle, steal that, like whatever. <laughs> I didn't have people to rely on, so I just relied on you know, my skills to be able to get belongings that didn't belong to me. So where were you sent once you were first arrested and, and convicted of, of stealing? Um, when I first went to custody, I went out to Cobham, which is um, in Penrith. Or like, like the outer western suburbs of yeah. Sydney. All I know is it's a long drive as a 14-year-old boy handcuffed in the back of a paddy wagon from Surrey Hills Police Station. And you have to do that at night, in, you know, handcuffed. So for me, I've done that trip many a times. But my first time was... Um, was the one that desensitised me and, 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 and broke, not my will, but broke me down as as a functioning uh, member of society, man. 
as a 14-year-old kid being arrested and, and still trying to figure it all out and then going to a police station and then them just worried about, you know, the crime you've committed and all of the bureaucracy behind it to be presented in front of a court and then to give me bail with no support, no way of feeding me, financing me, housing me, accommodating me was just a way to deeply entrench me in the community and behaviours that I was living amongst. Was there anyone in the in the system, like a social worker or, or a member of an extended family to step in at that point and say, this is a kid who lost both his parents at the age of six or seven and he's been living pretty free range all this time and trying to make his way in the world with no one looking after him. Was there anyone to say that on your behalf? A couple of reports got made, but part of the criminal justice system, particularly the judicial system, is it's not their responsibility. Right. So, yeah, this is a poor kid and we're sorry for what he went through, but if you want to get him help, that's your responsibility as his family. Uh, we know he doesn't have a mum and dad, but if you have blood or kins to this young person, it is your responsibility. There, there, there are policies and procedures, you know, that, that my people have fought for for many years and that are in practice today, but it's not a one-size-fits-all. So when I would present in front of a magistrate in the court and they're like, oh, but you're Aboriginal, you're from an Aboriginal community and you're always fighting for, for your own people. Well, somebody should be here fighting for you. I'm like, I wouldn't be here. Like, if I had somebody to provide me with food, clothes, shelter, all of these things, I wouldn't be out, you know, stealing them. You were in and out of juvenile detention right until the age of 18. When you're in there, and this I think gets to the heart of what you do to some degree, were you ever given an understanding of what your stay in detention was for? Was it to punish you for your offence? Was it, or was it to just keep you off the streets? Or given the fact that you're 14 years old, 15 years old, 16 years old, and still pretty malleable as a human being, was it put to you that you were there to be helped out of the, your life of crime, to find another way forward, to be rehabilitated? Nah, no. My experience and probably most of my peers and every single child that was in there when I was in there was there to be punished for a crime that they committed. From the ages of 10 up to 16, you are required and mandated to participate in any form of education. So wherever it is you're at, then from 16 to 18, if you don't participate in education, they have like a... <laughs> How do I explain it? They have a, a group inside these centres like the council and they just walk around the site bludgeoning every day with a whippersnipper and a lawnmower. So there's no sort of functional cognitive-based therapeutic programs where you can personally grow, understand your environment, you, you know, your, your, your social structure, how all of these things impact on your decision-making. I was just left to my own devices in there. They have um, two to three psychologists on site to um, cater to more than uh, over 200 boys. And if you have an hour or two with a psych, they're not going to do back-to-back. -back. So there's no sustained therapy in other words? No, there's there. nothing. Right. There's nothing for children at all. There is absolutely nothing in there when I was in there. They might have improved now, but when I was in there, there was nothing to teach me to understand about my community, what i seen, um, early childhood trauma, how it impacts the brain, development, going into the future, nothing around, um, you know, me being a pro-social citizen, uh, being convicted as a juvenile offender, having a criminal record that can be used against me as an adult, even if I wanted to stop crime. Like, none of this stuff was told to me as a kid. Like, you're here now at 14, you've been convicted, you're going to spend three months in custody, but when you're 22 and you go to apply for a job, you're not going to get that job because of the choice you made today. Nobody explained any of that. <laughs> Did you ever dream of a different kind of life for yourself? Yeah, man. For me, um, I think the thing that sort of held me together and and kept me centred was hope. Um, man, I'm 33, nearly turning 34, and I really had, haven't had a conversation about my mum and dad with anybody that I would like to have had that conversation with. Um, so that hope of a better quality of life, of one free from the one that I was living, uh, unconditional love, to have food in the cupboards, to have 
clean clothes, a warm bed, you know, to have a little bit of extra money that if I wanted to go see a movie or do something nice for myself, I wouldn't have to break into a house or rob somebody to do these things. So for me, that hope of something different was around forever for me. So any time I would get in a hard situation, I would never sort of allow myself to get depressed or I don't know, man. It was it's just hard to explain. For me, hope was there and, and, and you know, it was evident through my journey that even as an adult when I ended up in one of the worst prisons Australia's ever built, you know, I had um man, a revelation, man. And and I was like like how the fuck did I end up here? Broadcast, podcast. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. So, Kenan, and I'm astonished to have to ask this question, you didn't have a birth certificate, and that meant... You can get a driver's license or a passport or anything like that. How did you manage to get hold of one? Yeah, this is another thing that, you know, other people may not be familiar with, but some children, because of the placements when they're in care of the state or whether they're in kinship care because they're moving around from family to family, if nobody's responsible for making the paperwork follow that child, then that child has no documents. I was one of those children. I didn't get a document of who I was until I was 22 and I was in prison. So even if I wanted to slowly move away from, from you know, financing my lifestyle by committing crime, I couldn't even get on government benefits because I had no documents to prove who I was. You're an Aboriginal guy who can't prove he's an Australian citizen at that age. Yeah, so that was another sort of rhetoric that I got from um, Centrelink. You know, even when I presented with my documents, they had to do a six-week background check on me because they thought I was falsifying my documents because it's unusual and strange for a 23-year-old male from Redfern who doesn't have a tax file number or bank account or hasn't been on welfare benefits before. Was there no one in this system who saw your potential in the justice system that went... This guy's a smart kid and has got potential and can do all these things. Was there no one who saw that in you at the time? Nah, no one, man, no one. I got um, written off to right. because of all of the processes and structures in play. Um, they don't really care about my experience. They care about the behaviours that I'm presenting with and the criminal justice system only focuses on the behaviours you're presenting with or the accusation of a behaviour you're presenting with and then how do we justify a punishment that fits within that category. Yeah, no, none of them saw any other anything in me other than at that age that I would progress on to adult imprisonment. And yet, and yet, you were rescued by the love of a good woman. <laughs> yes, that actually happens in this world? Yeah. That does happen? I wasn't a damsel in distress. You weren't a damsel in distress. You were <laughs> rescued by this woman. Yes. How did you meet Carly? Oh, man. So I got released from Kempsey Prison in 2012. And <sighs> the next night I was having a few quiet ones with the chaps. But we were standing on the corner. And uh, one of the older members of my community pulled over and said, why are you doing that here? Like, you're only going to cause suspicion and police are going to come and you're not going to like the police. I said, okay, well, what's your solution? Then he said, oh, actually, my um, daughter turns 18th and we've got a party up in Crown Street. Come up, have a free feed and stop being a jailbird and be normal. And I was like, oh, you know what? That sounds like a good idea because there might be some people up there that I might be interested in talking to. 
or if not, <laughs> there's a free feed. <laughs> and yeah, I went up, I had a feed. I took one of my antisocial jail friends with me and we just congregated in a corner and watched the whole party. And then <laughs> I'm going to show you um, a little bit of how I struggle with my mental health, but we were sitting in the back thinking everybody's watching us and talking about us because we just got out of jail and we're going to have to fight our way out of this party. <laughs> Really? But what was looking back, what was really going on at that party? Just no, a bunch of nice people having a nice people time. People were getting drunk right, and right. <laughs> thinking, who's that guy? Who's that guy? Who's this guy? Right. But we were just like in the back, deeply paranoid, thinking everybody's out to get us and talking about us. But it was far from the truth. <laughs> and how about Carly? Did she approach you or did you approach her? What I remembered is like she walked in and... and <laughs> sounds like a corny song, but my eyes caught her eyes <laughs> from across the dance floor. <laughs> and at the time we had um a mutual sort of like uh, somebody i grew up with and somebody she grew up with so i went and said hello to him at the same time she was saying hello to him so that was a way for me to get introduced to her without me introducing myself so you're a guy who's been part of like street robberies where you drive a car into a shop but it's terrifying to talk to a girl yeah right. um if i went over and spoke to her and she shut me down i probably wouldn't have showed my face in a party for the next hundred years but you did talk to her. Yeah, I did. Nothing really sort of eventuated, but just exchange of numbers and, oh. <laughs> <laughs> and and she, was she impressive? The, the biggest thing for me was I was so uncomfortable in that environment. So I was like, oh, here's this, you know, beautiful woman who's legit and works. And what the f does she want to talk to me for? I don't want to have to go and commit a robbery just to have to show her I got money. Like, these are all the things that was going through my head, but in my sort of community, I was already ostracized because of the choices I make and because of the people that I hung around. So making me feel normal was really the key to, to, to me investing in trying to get to know her more because I have um, a nickname that most of the people and my old associates affiliate with what I was doing with at that time, and she didn't want to know that person. So... Meeting an Aboriginal woman that was educated, lovely person, good at conversation, all those sort of things. I suppose, I suppose that's where you can see a whole other way of being Aboriginal in the world. Oh, I just wanted to put her on lay-by to have my children straight away. <laughs> you didn't say that to her at the time. Did you? No. <laughs> no, but I was, right. like, I, was like, I was very intimidated. Um, but I think the fear of rejection, man, like mentally I wouldn't have been able to take it if I got rejected, so... So even so, after that, you got put in Goulburn Maximum Security Prison for robbery. Yeah. So I was accused of a crime while serving out my parole. So in terms of legislation, I'm a convicted criminal. So I got to be housed with convicted criminals. So whilst fighting my new case, I'm housed with murderers and terrorists and outlaw motorcycle gangs and... Then there's a special place on the other side of the prison where they house our most notorious child sex offenders. Yeah, it's not a good place, man. Why were you put there? Why were you put with such criminals of that calibre? Technicalities, man, technicalities. Because I committed a robbery while serving a community-based order, it's a serious indictable offence that breaches my community-based order, which now I'm a sentenced prisoner and I need to be housed with sentenced prisoners, even though I'm still being accused of a crime. Man, I had two elderly gentlemen beside me sharing a joke to me and they said, nephew, you know, between us, we're serving over 85 years. And like, they're laughing. And I'm like, what is this? Like, is this the Twilight Zone? Like, how does anybody in their normal right mind think that serving 85 years is a joke? Tom, do you remember what you thought? Do you thought, oh, that's going to be me? Or do you think that is definitely not going to be me? Well, that's where, that's where I had my sort of epiphany at that time because I was like, this system is so well designed that I haven't even murdered anyone, but I'm being housed with murderers. Why? How did you find out you were getting a visit in prison? <laughs> I was just in, in my zone. I think I was um, uh, listening to the local Goulburn radio. And somebody like kicked me and said, oh, excuse my French, but he said, dickhead, you got a visit. And I went, what? No one visits me. <laughs> and if it is, it's probably the police and I'm not going out there. And he said, no, mate, you're on the list. Like you've got a proper visit. And I was like, who the f is visiting me? 
who is this? And then when I walked out, I seen that it was um, Carly and I felt a little bit better, but I felt a lot of dissonance because I was like, are you sure you want to come visit me and maintain this? Because I'm in my own head, I'm here with murderers and these people are trying to mold me into a murderer. And what did she say to you? She didn't want to hear any of it. She wanted to hear, what am I going to do differently? What am I going to do differently so I don't have to commit crime, so I don't have to sleep in a park, so I don't have to steal? What am I going to do? And it was a bit of tough love at that time because I was like 23 at that time. Whatever I can do, I'm doing, and it's bringing me in here. She was like, no, 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 no. You just sit with it. You don't have to answer it now, but what are you going to do when you come home so you don't have to commit a robbery to put money in your pockets, to put some shoes on your feet, to put some food in your tummy? What are you? I don't care about the police. I don't care about the juvenile system. I don't care about the screws. I don't care about the boys. I don't care about anything you're telling me. What are you going to do? And I was like, fuck. Because I didn't have the answer. I'd done nearly everything that the system told me to do in terms of uh, my offending behaviour, victim empathy, all of these things. None of them paid the bills or got me accommodation. I came out with all of these therapeutic certificates, but there was no way to eat or pay the bills. How did you manage to get over being addicted to drugs? One day at a time, man. Um, what listeners need to understand that addiction, crime and jail is a full-time job, like a full-time job. So as soon as your eyes open in the morning, if I don't have money, where am I going to get it from? If I don't have drugs, where am I going to get it from? That's all that's on your mind. So when removing these things from my life, what am I going to put in play? I'm going to have all this time on my hands. If I'm not chasing drugs or chasing money or chasing crime, what am I going to do? So I asked myself, what did I do before them? I went to school, I played football, I connected with my family where I could, and then um, having the opportunity to do an alternative program in prison allowed me to come home slowly. What wasn't working for me was serving long sentences, like here's four years, there's the gate, on your son, do your best, here's your certificate, just say no to drugs and don't do crime. That wasn't working for me. I needed practical, real-life skills on, you know, how to just do things day-to-day -day out here. I didn't, I didn't run by any clock. I didn't have no diary. I had nowhere to be but everywhere to go. So I had to unlearn all of those things. So the way I did it was I started um, studying as a youth worker while volunteering. I was playing rugby league again. I was reconnecting with my older siblings. I was learning more about my mum and my dad, about my roots, my DNA, my bloodlines, where they come from. I was learning more about my culture. I was in a process of healing and still am in a process of healing and I will forever be healing from my experience, not just as a child, but being institutionalised from a young age. Even, you know, to sit in a room like this 10, 10 years ago, mate, like, I wouldn't have time for, for you, even if you wanted to have a question, air with me. And, and you know, at that time, the, the, the resentment and anger that I was ca carrying because, you know, yes, I was hurting a lot of people and damaging the community, but I was damaged myself. So you and Carly got married. And what was she doing at the time? She's worked in the community service sector for a while, for corrective services, um, she like got a Bernardo's. criminology degree or something like that? Yeah, so she was a, a late learner in, in, in uni and she went back and got her master's degree but still worked within these um, systems and really couldn't affect change. You know, programs will be developed, written and given to her to make it adapt to Aboriginal people. That's not how we work and operate and that's not how you affect change and that's how we're continually being let down. So... They also gave her a bit of a difficult time having a relationship with me. Why? Because she worked for the department and they were worried about property or IP or... Oh, you had a criminal record. So, so that was a problem was, for her. She right. was the other side, mate. Right. 
she wasn't a prison officer, but she worked in prison administration. She went through the normal processes and declared her relationship with me. And it went nowhere for about, I think, two years. And then we were expecting our second child and they made it really difficult for her and me watching her jump through all of these hoops just to get a paycheck from them. And it's like, this is, this is not healthy for you. It's not healthy for my child. It's not healthy for our relationship. What was it like for you to start verbalising what you'd been through? Start telling your story. I think part of me coming out of Goulburn and owning my experience and, and, and forgiving myself was to write write it down. And it took me about three months, man, just to, just to sit with some of these thoughts and feelings that I've been suppressing and medicating since I was 14 because I didn't like how that made me feel. I didn't like how... They made my body react, um, but I, I wrote it out and I let somebody else read it, man. Who? Carly or someone else? Someone inside. Right. And he couldn't speak to me for about a week because that's not how I presented. I don't understand. What do you mean? So he knew me interpersonally and knew me for a while. I'd done a bit of time with him, but he didn't know I went through any of that stuff as a child. And he couldn't see how I presented myself and the way I talk, that I was a child who went through some horrendous things. You know, the only thing that I didn't go through, man, is being sexually abused. So he was like, I don't know how you wake up every day, but I don't know how you talk. I don't know how you laugh. I don't know how you mingle because I'd be in my cell medicated and probably crying every day. So, yeah. I'd done that, man, for three years when my mum and dad died. It didn't do anything for me. I mean, I think it's, it's really obvious what you do in your life. You're kind of very, I don't mean to embarrass you, but you're clearly a pretty exceptional person. But not everyone's exceptional like you, are they? And a lot of people don't have the imagination or the kind of moral courage to, to imagine a different life and live that different life. I suppose they're the people you're fighting for now who need a bit of help. Yeah. Yes, definitely. You know, definitely, they're the people that I'm fighting for the next generation, but also those that are trapped and are losing hope every day. Um, I know how powerful hope is, and I know when you feel like you're losing it, um, how mentally exhausting it is to accept a life that you never wanted. You've been part of a campaign to change the age of criminal responsibility in Australia. Currently, it's it's still at 10 years old. A lot of other countries, it's, it's the age of 14. And in fact, at the UN, 31 different countries have urged Australia to raise the age of criminal responsibility from 10 to 14. And this is an age that uh, traps a lot of Aboriginal kids in juvenile detention. I think like, like half the kids in juvie at the moment uh, and have been for a long while are Indigenous kids. To do this, you, <laughs> you address the UN in Geneva I'd be scared to do that. Are you, were you scared at the time or were you just so full of, full of passion you, did, you could just push through the scaredness? Man, I do, I do have fears, but, but I, I, I tackle them every day. And the life that I lived, I had to overcome my fears pretty quickly. So when getting the invite to go to the UN, um, there was no fear. It was excitement, really overwhelmed. And I had two children at home at that time that couldn't come. So you're missing them? Yeah. So I spent a week in Switzerland, but I got to talk the first day. So I didn't really get to process it because it was more like a business trip rather than a holiday. But coming home, man, I think I was just over the horn of Sri Lanka down the bottom coming back and... I was just hit with emotions, man, very overwhelmed and thinking about my experience and not once did I ever think I'd be in a position to leave my country on legal terms to represent, you know, my people, to use my lived experience and my story as a journey to persuade our government to do things differently. But the biggest thing for me coming back on that plane was thinking about my children. You know, people who have been through what 
you've been through who had terrible childhoods and who have turned out to be able to find some way to have a good life and become a good man and have kids, they see themselves sometimes as a bridge for their kids to walk across from from the fear and deprivation of your childhood to a, a safer life. Do you see yourself that way or, some, or is it not like that? Yeah, definitely, man. Um, one of the biggest goals of growing up in a poor community is to be able to remove yourself from that community, start a family and never have them exposed to what you was exposed to within that community. But also not just giving the children the material things that I missed out on, but giving them the, the education and the life um, education of, of what I wasn't able to, to be privileged to have that sort of organic how do I say it, man? Osmosis that happens when you're around a positive man who shows up and pays the bills and shows you how to manage their emotions differently than, you know, smashing the house up and, and, and fighting and domestic violence. So my children never have to see them again and they can get their best start in life and they can develop like every other child in their classroom. Tell me about Deadly Connections. You started with Carly. I looked at your website and your programs are ambitious, really ambitious. So Deadly Connections is coming onto its third anniversary and it was built and designed by myself and my wife in direct response to the overrepresentation of Aboriginal people in the child protection and justice system, Um, knowing that there's a strong correlation between out-of-home care and justice. There is no place for Aboriginal people to go to get their needs met we have to go to a white service that's catered to white people that was designed by white people and we're always uh an afterthought okay we've built this this is great it's best practice it's research how do we make this work for the aboriginal population so we designed it with the aboriginal people at the forefront and the center of being service providers using lived experience from the womb to the tomb we don't want to do all the work, but we want to create an environment where if you need social, emotional well-being, if you need justice or child protection needs, you can come to my service. And if we can't give it to you, we will facilitate access to other services that we know are culturally appropriate for you to get your needs met. We have our Deadly Families Project, which works with mums and dads that have child protection risk factors, that have early childhood traumas, that have struggled with addiction, and now child protection are involved. And what we're developing is a way to upskill these parents and be the best parents with the sort of environment they're in, to be able to know that if we invest in these families and keep these children and families united together, we're gonna have stronger, safer communities. Because the flip side is it to that is the financial cost. So rather than invest money into this family and upskill them and make sure the bills are paid, they will remove the child, place it with somebody else and give them $40,000 to look after the children, which is to me a bit crazy. The second project is our deadly jarjum. So deadly is a very, very unique word, which means like awesome, great job, well done. And jarjums here within our dialect means children. And we'll be targeting primary school children aged from year three to year six that come from similar household as mine. The domestic violence in their household, there's drugs, there's alcohol, a sibling or a mum or dad might be in prison. How do we get them to engage in school and make sure that their needs are met at home, the bills are paid, there's food in the house for them to show up at school and have fun? We will create an after hours school program. So when the school bell rings, we'll keep them connected to culture. We'll talk to them um, where appropriate around some of the behaviours that they're witnessing and being exposed to, how they keep themselves safe, how they make sure mum and dad's safe, um, if there's drugs in the house, what do they do, where do they go, like all of this stuff that I was exposed to and nobody told me about it. The third program is our Street Smart Project, which is a detached youth work project given the over-policing of you know Aboriginal communities, particularly teenagers. We just provide a, a free activity. We just play basketball. I take a basketball, a football, and a speaker, and I just hang with them on their terms in their community and say, okay, what's going on? Like, 
that's how we keep our ears to the streets. We get to know who's doing what. And the same, we talk to them about fighting. We talk to them about filming fights, posting fights. We talk to them about bullying in person, bullying on online. We talk to them about in, engaging and interacting with police in a, in, a, in a way that's safe and appropriate. The last project is our Breaking the Cycle program, and you touched on it earlier. So any of the individuals, men, women, or children, who can't fit into those three structured programs will fit into our Breaking the Cycle. So we do intensive casework support for over three months. That's for people at risk of coming involved in the criminal justice system, already involved with the criminal justice system, and looking to exit the criminal justice system. How important is teaching Aboriginal culture to what you do? So culture and healing is placed at the direct centre of what we do. There is scientific research that culture, when dealing with people that have been exposed to trauma, culture is a protective factor from that trauma. It's at the front of what we do. Um, besides the service delivery stuff that we do, we do campaigning, lobbying, we do submissions to parliament. <laughs> We're doing all of this amazing work and we have two children at home. Yeah. It's been completely amazing speaking with you, Keenan. Thank you so much for sharing your story. No, thank you very much. Thank you for allowing me um, this space, man. Podcast, broadcast, and online. This is Conversations with Richard Feitler. Keenan Nundine is the co-founder of Deadly Connections. We'll put the link for that on our website. If this program has raised any issues for you, there's always Lifeline 13 11 14, and we'll put the link for that on our website as well. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.